I believe most of us have a credit card because the marketing involved to encourage you to have one is both powerful and attractive. Of course, there are many perks for why we want to have a credit card. It's convenient, it's easy to use, especially when you want to purchase something. You don't have to mess with cash, and the transaction is almost instantaneous. In fact, credit card companies entice you by giving you lots of free incentives if you own a particular card. For example, this one card may give you free access to the airport lounges. Another may give you free points for a free flight or a free hotel stay. Another credit card may give you 50% discount at a few restaurants. This particular card uh, may earn you free gifts or points towards a free smartphone or device. It's all marketed as free as long as you use the credit card. As one who always pays off the credit card balance in full at the end of every month, having a credit card is a no-brainer for me. I have the convenience of not only using the credit card, but having many things free. And of course, all of the additional perks. But the dark and dangerous side of credit cards is in the fine prints of the documents that really no one reads. And I recently experienced it. Before I left for the U.S. Uh, on July the 1st, I made sure to have all of my Philippine credit cards paid in full. When I came back in September, to my surprise, after a series of delays, I was shocked to find that one of the credit cards had an outstanding charge of 130 U.S. dollars. I called to find out why, and they said it was because of non-payment. I said I did pay everything in full before I left, but when I checked, apparently there was a payment of $70 that came in on the day I flew out, and I wasn't able to catch it and therefore pay for it. And the penalty for non-payment was 23% every billing cycle. And of course, after three billing cycles, that interest compounded. The amount due was now almost doubled of the original price I owed. I quickly paid it off, but then realized no wonder credit card companies can offer so many free perks to the cardholders. Not only do they make a lot of money from transactional fees, but I'm sure they make a lot of monies on the very high interest rates for non-payments that many people are simply not aware of. It reminded me that there are many things that we fall into that we can consider fatal attractions. And we fall into these practices because there is an appeal that masks the hidden dangers or minimizes the caution we should usually have. Just like when a married man is smitten by a woman, not his wife, and is attracted to her. That attraction will cause him to throw out his sense of logic and, and right thinking and moral grounding, where he will be willing to lose his job, his family, and his reputation in the community in the pursuit of this woman who is not his wife, simply because he is attracted to her. That is the power of attraction. But aside from people, we can also be attracted to certain destructive actions that will affect our relationship with Jesus Christ and cause us to ignore the truth and thus hurt us at the end. As we continue our study in the book of Galatians, Paul admonishes the Galatian Christians for falling into the trap of the false teachings of the Judaizers because they presented a false gospel that appealed to one of four areas in their lives an attraction that 
would prove fatal in their spiritual life and which caused Paul to warn them in this letter to them. I want to highlight these four attractions or appeals so that today we also don't get caught up in them and are also then enticed and entrapped to follow false teachings or lies that will eventually ruin our lives. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 4 as we take a look at verses 8 to 31. Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 to 31. I read from verses 8 and 9. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you serve those which by nature are not God's. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you have turned again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Here in verses 8 and 9, we see that Paul reminds the Galatian Christians that before they came to know the one true God, they served the many false gods that permeated the Hellenistic culture of the Roman world. But they have been told the truth by Paul and have come to accept it. They have known God, Paul writes, meaning they have come to salvation by placing their trust in Jesus, and this is salvation from the perspective of man. But they are also known by God, as verse 9 states, with emphasis here on salvation by God's gracious election, which is salvation from the perspective of God. In this one phrase contains two truths equally taught as it relates to salvation, which is God's election and man's choice or responsibility. Since they knew the truth regarding salvation by faith alone, Paul's disappointment in them was that the Galatians were willing to go back to a false gospel of salvation through works, which brought about bondage. It was a false gospel that Paul writes that he calls weak. As we talked about in previous weeks, it was weak because it was a false gospel based on good works, which could really not save, nor could it motivate towards spiritual living. This false gospel was also described by Paul as beggarly, which means it wasn't worth very much. It cannot even produce a heavenly inheritance, unlike that of salvation through Christ, which made us heirs as His children, which we talked about last week. Remember, generally, obedience to the law doesn't get you a reward. You only get punished when you break the law. You don't get rewarded by obeying it. And yet, there is still a draw or an appeal to the law for the Galatians, which caused them to abandon a salvation which results in freedom in Christ and instead accept and practice a false gospel which resulted in bondage. And this attraction is found in verse 10. Look with me. Verses 10 and 11. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Apparently, because of the Judaizers who were advocating for the Galatians to embrace and practice Jewish customs and ceremonial acts, the Galatian Christians had begun to observe Jewish religious festivals and practices. Here in verse 11, Paul says that he fears that all of his hard work to give them the truth of the gospel was now wasted, was now in vain if they continue to follow through with this false teaching centered on legalistic beliefs. So apparently the Galatian Christians started to observe the Sabbath worship on Saturdays. Here we see the reference to days in this verse. 
We also mentioned last week that Christians are not obligated to observe the Sabbath on Saturday anymore. The Galatian Christians observed various new moon festivals referred to here as months, and the Jewish seasonal festivals like Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Booths in this verse referred to as seasons. And most likely they even celebrated the Jewish tradition of the year of Jubilee, represented by the word years. Perhaps they observed these events thinking they would receive salvation or more of God's grace and and blessings. Contextually today, it's like celebrating the Muslim holidays of Eid al-Adha or Eid al-Fitr. Even if you're not Muslim, just because you think if you observe all of the religious holidays of the other major religions and somehow you become more holy or more saved. Of course, this is ridiculous. We've said it earlier in this series, but it bears another reminder. There is nothing you and I can do today that will make God love you more or love you less. His love is unconditional. And there is nothing more you and I can do today that will make us, quote-unquote, more saved or less saved. Our eternal security in our salvation is assured through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, in the Christian faith, if we are not careful, we get caught up in observing a particular date or holiday instead of remembering the significance of the event. For example, it's interesting that in the New Testament, there is no command to celebrate Christmas or Easter. We are to simply remember Jesus Christ, specifically His death and resurrection. So in reality, you can celebrate the coming of the Savior into the world when He took on incarnate form any day of the year. It doesn't have to be on December 25. We can remember the death and resurrection of our Savior every day of the year instead of only on Good Friday or on Easter Sunday. It is not the date that is significant. We have the freedom to remember and commemorate these wonderful aspects of the life of Christ any day of the year, perhaps every day. What is significant is that we remember what Jesus did. And in doing so, it challenges us and motivates us to be more like Him. Dates are good only in that it allows us to set aside time from our busy schedule to do just that. But we have to be careful that in our busyness to prepare, to commemorate, we don't get caught up in the unimportant things like buying a gift on Christmas for everyone in our extended family, a gift that they will like and worrying about that. Or worrying about trying to lay your hands on a chocolate bunny on Easter, which has nothing to do with what is actually being celebrated. But just what is the appeal and attraction of celebrating these Jewish dates and days for the Galatian Christians? I think the appeal is that of doing the bare minimum. Number one of you are taking notes. The attraction of doing the bare minimum. The attraction of doing the bare minimum. What do I mean? I mean that we all like people telling us exactly what to do and when to do it so that we don't have to think very much and just simply go through the motions. This is what's going to happen on this particular day. You just need to do this and that on this day and you're good to go. It's human tendency to want to be in bondage per se because we want to do the bare minimum and no more. 
We don't want to exert the effort to do more. We just want to be told what needs to be done and simply be over with it. Now, there is a difference between being proactive to set aside time to worship the Lord versus just going through the motions because someone told you you have to worship at this time and at this place. This goes to a matter of attitude. You see, if such great importance is placed on Christmas and Easter over other days, and you have it on your calendars, and only remember these events in the life of Christ by coming to church on those days, then you think to yourself, I only need to show up on Christmas and Easter, and I've done my job, and God will be pleased. That is the bare minimum to make Him happy. And that's why so many Christians only show up at church Or for the Catholics, they only show up on Christmas Mass or Easter Mass. Those two days of the years, and somehow they walk away satisfied, thinking that somehow God must be pleased with them. Because for many of us, it's just simply going through the motions to do the least that will make God happy. So we all want to know what is the bare minimum that we have to do for Jesus. Because we are intrinsically lazy. How many of you would like to know what is the bare minimum that Jesus expects you to do as a Christian, as his follower, to make him happy? I'm sure many of us would love to know. Because once we know, we would do them, check it off our list, and move on with our lives. But it's interesting that in the Bible, he actually doesn't give us the bare minimum of what he expects. And for many of us who are wired this way, we're quite frustrated That's why if someone were to come along and to offer that these are the bare minimums that will make God happy and bless you, then you are attracted to that type of teaching. So people ask, how many Sundays do I need to attend that will make God happy? The Bible doesn't say. But because the Christian world puts such a big emphasis on Christmas Sunday and Easter Sunday, the lazy Christian says, I will just make an effort to show up on those weekends, and I think that's it for me. We ask, how many times do I need to forgive someone? In fact, the disciples asked Jesus the same question in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus doesn't give them an answer, a specific number that they were looking for. He gave them a principle to live by. How many times do we need to pray every day that will make God happy? Perhaps three times before every meal? But the Bible doesn't give us how many times we are to pray every day. In fact, the New Testament gives us this verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Pray without ceasing. How many times do I have to be thankful? In the next verse, Paul answers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Always give thanks. I think you see my point. When someone offers a rule of life, For what is the bare minimum, we are attracted to it. But that is false teaching because the Bible tells us we have the freedom to live for Jesus. Don't fall into the attraction of doing the bare minimum. For someone who died for you for free, as we know salvation is a free gift, he doesn't ask for anything specific you are to do to pay him back. He simply asks that you live your life for him and everything you do in thanksgiving as someone who is a new creation, not out of obligation. 
Let me give you another example to help you understand this principle. Let's say, for example, I donated one of my kidneys to you, and it saves your life. And I wonder what I can get from you or what you will do for me. What if I asked you after I donated my kidney to you, can I borrow 10,000 pesos? You would say, sure. In fact, it's not even a loan. You can just have it. What if I asked you for 50,000 pesos? Perhaps, if you had capacity. What if I asked you for 100,000 pesos? If you had capacity, you'd probably give it to me. How about a million? What if the number keeps getting bigger? What if I asked you, since I gave you my kidney, could I borrow money from you whenever I want to for the rest of my life? Would you agree to that ask? Probably not. If I were to ask you after I donated my kidney, would you make breakfast for me for a week? I'm sure you would say absolutely. How about a month? For an entire month, you would make me breakfast. You'd think about it, but I'm sure you'd do it. What about if I were to ask you to make me three meals a day for the rest of my life? You may not agree, but I could come back and tell you, but I saved your life with my kidney. As you can see, if we do things out of obligation at some point, it will put us into bondage trying to meet our obligations. You will go crazy if you're trying to play the bare minimum game because you will feel stuck as if you need to pay back, as if you need to return the favor. Jesus isn't like that when he gives up his life in our place. He says it is free. He just asks that we live our lives for Him if we are so inclined to pick up our cross and follow Him if we would. No rules, no bare minimum, and that is very freeing. That's why we say we have freedom in Christ. But unfortunately, we are wanting to receive all of the benefits and do the bare minimum which the law offers, and therefore many Christians are attracted to legalism. Look at verses 12 to 14. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Here, Paul implores the Galatian Christians to be like him as he was free in Jesus Christ from the bondage of the law or obedience of the law through good works. Paul reminds them in verses 12 to 14 how they first treated him when he first visited them, as is recounted in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Apparently, when he visited them, Paul had some debilitating illness. But this illness did not deter the Galatians from treating Paul very well. They treated him so well as, he writes, as if he was an angel or Christ himself. The hospitality was great because Paul brought them the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 15. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. 
Here in verse 15, Paul reminded them of the joy and, and the deep appreciation they had towards him, knowing that Paul had introduced into their life a life-changing, freeing truth of salvation through faith in Jesus. So appreciative that they would have given their eyes to Paul if he needed it. This figure of speech was Paul trying to convey how highly admired and honored Paul had been to them. But something changed. Look at verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Somehow he was no longer their friend, but he was their enemy. Why? Look at verse 16 again. He told them the truth. Would you circle that phrase? That's important for us to remember. He told them the truth. How many of us will admit that we don't like someone because they tell us what we don't want to hear, which is the truth? We may not admit it, but that is the reality. Imagine how shallow and changeable these Galatians were to reject truth and to not like the man who brought it to them simply because they liked to hear something better, something they wanted to hear. But that which they wanted to hear was untruth, falsehoods. Sadly, the Galatians demonstrated, number two, the attraction of listening only to what I want to hear. The attraction of listening only to what I want to hear. How many of us like it when we are told the truth? But it is not something that we want to hear because it requires a a change in our life. It identifies a blind spot. How many of us actively invite others to speak truth to us and we really mean it when we tell people, please tell me how I can be better. Tell me how I can change. I've met so many people who say that they want to know the truth. They want to be notified about blind spots in their life. But in their actions, you know they don't want to hear it and they don't accept it. That's why it's important to not only be aware of your blind spots, but also to surround yourself with men and women who are willing to point them out to you and tell you the truth, even if you don't want to hear it. There are some people who give the Bible verse Give thanks always as a defensive mechanism to shield themselves from hearing constructive criticism. They say, if you criticize me, then you are not giving thanks. You are differing and not obeying a biblical principle. But that would be a misuse of that verse. We all have blind spots that need to be addressed. And we need to tell others to tell us the truth so that we don't fall into the attraction of listening to only what we want to hear. The book of Proverbs is full of wise words for us to heed. And it advises us that it is important for us to hear the truth even if we don't want to hear it. Let me give you a few verses from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 14 Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Here's another one. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22. Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Wonderful words for us to live by. Here's another one. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 6. 
For by wise counsel you will wage your own war, and in the multitude of counselors there is safety. All of these wise sayings from the book of Proverbs and in other verses in the Bible tell us that we need to be told the truth and we need to listen and to accept it. But because we find it so hard to accept our own faults, to admit our own weaknesses and to address our own deficiencies, we simply want to listen to what we want to hear. And sometimes we redirect our attention instead to attacking others. As Jeremy Meyer once wrote, we would rather point out a dozen sins in the life of someone else than take an honest look at the sin in our own life. We love to point the finger at others, but when someone points it at us, or when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we are quick to defend our actions and make excuses for our failures. So true. Blind spots are areas in our life that we don't see. Or we won't admit that there's a problem. The very word blind spot means that unless someone points it out, we don't see it. We won't address it. For example, someone tells you, my friend, you have an anger problem. To which you angrily respond, no, I don't. And they say, see, there it is. My kids called me out once. They said, dad, you tell us to say sorry often. But you don't say sorry very often when you're wrong. You always defend yourself. How would you respond if your children called you out? The natural tendency is to say, no, I didn't do it, or no, I don't. That evening, I asked my wife, is this true, what my children say? She said, well, kind of. You're always justifying why you weren't really wrong when you were wrong. But I told her, but I'm usually right. But she says, when you're wrong, uh, you don't often say sorry. But then I thought of my children who live with me 24-7, see this as an issue, and I don't recognize it, that it must be a blind spot for me. I can choose to accept it, learn from it, benefit from it, or I can ignore it and let it be an issue for me. Thankfully, many years ago when my children told me that, I've begun to address this blind spot in my life. Family is a gift from God for you to identify your blind spots, your problem areas in your life. Would you dare to ask your family after this message, family, what are three areas in my life I need to improve in? Do you have the boldness to do that? And after hearing it, you still have to humbly accept it and in that humility to correct your life so that you can avoid the attraction of only listening to what you want to hear. Pray and ask the Lord to help you. Pray that God would send you other people to help you identify your weak spots, your blind spots, so that you don't fall into the attraction of only listening to what you want to hear so that you can become more Christ-like in the way you live. Let's take a look at verses 17 and 18. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. Paul further exposed the Judaizers and what they were doing to the Galatian Christians in these verses. 
he wrote that the motive of these Judaizers were dishonest. They used flattery to win over the Galatians. You see, the Judaizers tried to exclude and separate Paul from the Galatians so that they would be able to influence the Galatian Christians unchallenged with the truth that Paul brought. And they used flattery to court them to their side. Paul describes their tactic as one of zealousness, zealously trying to win them, but their motives were not a good one. Their motive was not so that they would become more Christ-like, but so that they too would become zealot advocates for this false gospel. The Judaizers wanted to use the Galatians as vehicles to spread this false teaching. In verse 18, Paul says, Yes, it is good to be sought after, but only if the motives and the intentions are right. Unlike in the case of the Judaizers who intended to win them over with flattery and then use them for their own purpose. Look at verse 19 and 20. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Paul says in verse 19 that his motives are good and true, even if he speaks the truth and they don't want to hear it. He addressed them affectionately as my little children because he had brought them the gospel of salvation in faith alone, in Jesus alone, to them. He was like their spiritual father. They were his children. And he used the imagery of birth pains to express what he was going through to convince them to be free from the Judaizer's false gospel and for them to continue in the true gospel towards Christian maturity. Paul wished for them in verse 20 to be with them so that he can speak the truth in love regarding his loving concern for the Galatians. He really loved them. He had the right motives. You see, sadly, the Galatians had fallen, number three, into the attraction of accepting flattery which disguises true motives. Accepting flattery which disguises true motives. There are so many verses that speak about the dangers of flattery and how we fall so easily susceptible to the lying words if it is couched in beautiful language. But we need to be warned. Let's take a look at some verses. Proverbs chapter 29, verses 5 and 6, reading from the New Living Translation. To flatter friends is to lay a trap for their feet. Imagine that. You're laying a trap when you flatter. When other people flatter, they're laying a trap for you. Look what the psalmist writes in Psalm 78, verse 36. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongue. Flattery is equated with lying. Psalm chapter 62, verse 4. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Flattery is really to take you down. It is not to bring you up, the psalmist writes. But who doesn't like to hear nice words? Someone has said, flattery is like perfume. The idea is to smell it, not swallow it. Another suggested, flattery is like counterfeit money, 
vanquished, but for vanity would be of no value. Most of us would rather be hurt by flattery than helped by criticism. Someone else writes. I like that. Most of us would rather be hurt by flattery than helped by criticism. It could be said, as someone writes, flattery is not communication, it is manipulation. These Galatians were suckered into the false gospel of the Judaizers simply through flattery. But what's more important is the motive behind those words of flattery. Let's take, for example, that you are doing something wrong. Let's say the backhand swing while you play badminton is not employing the right technique. Would you rather have a coach who yells and screams at you to hold your racket properly and use the right technique? Or would you rather have a coach who's always saying, good job, keep it up, but never telling you that your backhand technique is wrong? Now, all of us know that the right answer is the first option, but all of us would rather experience the second option. Perhaps you would justify it in your mind because you prefer the second option. I don't like to be yelled at. Even if it's to be told the truth, I don't like to be yelled at. Or, you know, I'm not a professional player anyways. They don't need to correct me. Or this is only for recreation. Or I've only started playing for three months. I shouldn't be yelled at. But the problem is that in these sorts of justification in your mind, it only hurts you because you will actually never learn the right truth. So you have fallen into the trap of accepting flattery which disguises truth or true motives. So be very careful. I hope I would come to a point where I will accept being yelled at because it is good for me because it is truth versus words of flattery that never speak truth into my life. Be very careful and be warned if someone is always praising you, if someone is overtly nice to you. I understand fully that everyone needs to be encouraged. And the Bible says we are to encourage others. But be wary of people's true motives if they heap upon you flattery. That's why parents correct. They don't always flatter. They do it out of love because they want you to improve. They want to tell you the truth. Their motives are foundationed in love. A parent who never corrects is a parent who is not doing their job. My parents loved me enough to discipline me and admonish me many times when I was wrong. And I would utter under my breath, I hate you. But when I accept that their motive is out of love, then I am able to accept what they say. And that's Paul's point here to the Galatians. Don't get sucked into the flattery of the Judaizers, which only disguises their true motives. Open your eyes. I speak harsh truth to you, but it's because I love you. Finally, Paul now pivots here in verses 21 to 31 by using a scriptural example to remind the Galatians about an Old Testament story to illustrate the truth of his teachings about justification through Christ alone on the basis of God's grace versus the false teaching of the Judaizers and their advocating a salvation by works through obedience in the law. Let's take 
a look quickly at this Old Testament example. Verses 21 to 23. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Paul brought them back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and reminded them that he had two sons. One was Isaac, born to his wife Sarah, and the other Ishmael, born to Hagar, Sarah's servant. Now, if you remember the story, Sarah gave birth to Isaac well past her childbearing age. It was a miracle from God because of a promise that he had given Abraham. Look at verse 24 to 27. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate may have many more children than she who has a husband. Let me help you explain some of these difficult verses. Using the story of uh, these two mothers, Paul compared it to the difference between Judaism and Christianity. The first comparison was that of the two covenants. The covenant of law found its origin on Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. And those under this covenant lived in bondage. Similar to Hagar's son who was a slave positionally because she was a slave in the household of Abraham. In contrast, the new covenant of Christ represented by the Abrahamic promise, was founded on grace. And those who were under this covenant were free. Again, the interchange between bondage and freedom. The second comparison was that of the two Jerusalems. Hagar represented the Jerusalem under Roman bondage, while Sarah represented the heavenly Jerusalem, which was free. Again, the interplay between bondage and freedom. In verse 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, which promises a glorious future for Israel in the millennium. And it applies in this situation of Sarah, where the blessings were greater for those under the covenant of grace. Now look at verses 28 to 31. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Finally, Paul applies this historical reminder and compares what happened then with what is happening to the Galatian Christians. Just like Isaac in the narratives, Christians are the children of promise, and therefore they are free. They are not to live as children under bondage. Now, the Judaizers persecuted the Christians in the first century, just like Ishmael mocked and looked down on Isaac, Genesis chapter 21, verse 9. What was the resulting action? The resulting action should be like what Sarah did, 
when she asked Abraham to expel Hagar and Ishmael. In the same way, the Galatians were to get rid and expel the Judaizers who were mocking the children of promise. They were mocking the true Christians. It is a reminder to the Galatians using history that they were to think and they needed to know from history what they are to do now. And that was to throw the Judaizers out. And this quick reminder from history, Paul was reminding the Galatians to think for themselves. It's been said that history is important because it serves as a warning for us today in the present to avoid the mistakes of the past. Just as Abraham was wise enough in the past to separate his two sons who were in conflict, the lesson is that it is wise to remove those who advocated for the salvation through the law from those who advocated for the true gospel of salvation by grace. There was no place for these false teachers in their midst. This is a very profound argument. It's a very deep argument that Paul was making. It may be difficult for some of us to understand at first, but it calls us to think. And by thinking, number four, we avoid the attraction of not having to think for yourself. The attraction of not having to think for yourself. Sadly, can I make a general statement? No one likes to use their brains these days. That's why Christians are so easily caught up into conspiracy theories. We are no different than non-Christians. We are so gullible, even though we have the truth. We are so gullible that we believe everything we read on the internet or watch on YouTube. Christians are intrinsically lazy. They don't like to think for themselves. They want the simple answer. That's why many often ask me, Are Christians allowed to do this or that? These are questions uh, in the gray area of Christian life. But they simply want a yes or no from the pastor so that they can simply do what they hear. But I don't give them a straight yes or no. I say, well, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly, but here are some biblical principles for how you can apply it in your situation and in your context. But they don't have time to hear the biblical principles. And sometimes they move on to the internet to find a right or wrong, a yes and no. They want me to think for them. My friends, here's the danger. When you don't think for yourself, and when you let others think for you, you will fall into the pitfalls of life. When you stop thinking and allow others to think for you, don't you see that as something dangerous? God gave us a brain. Use it. My friends, it's time as Christians we level up and we put in the effort to know the Scriptures, to know the deep theological truths of the Scriptures, and to think for ourselves Don't fall into the attraction of not having to think for yourself. It is very attractive. There are many times I don't want to make decisions. I tell my wife, I tell my kids, you guys decide for me. We're lazy. We are infatuated with the thought that we don't have to do anything and someone else can make that decision. But remember, there is no one to blame. When your life falls apart because you've seeded 
the decision-making process to someone else to think for you. The Galatians had done that. They did not think for themselves. And so Paul writes this letter to help them think about the deep things of scriptures so that they can throw away the false teachings of the Judaizers. May we all be thinking Christians. We are attracted to so many things in the Christian life. Most of those things we are attracted to lead us to our failures. But I pray that there will be one attraction that you hone in on. And that attraction is that of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That we would be so attracted to Him and His Word that we will drop everything to spend time with Him. That we will use our lives to live it for Him so that He will be pleased. And He has given us the freedom to do just that. He does not oblige us to pay back for what He did on the cross. He simply says, carry your cross and follow me. May the words of Scripture challenge each one of us. May the words of Scripture identify areas in our life that we need to change. May we be open to hearing truth, even if it's hard, so that we can be more like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. These are difficult words to hear, but we need to hear them. We have fallen, many of us, into fatal attractions in our life where we cede control of our lives to others. We do not think for ourselves. We want the bare minimum. We want the easy way. We don't like to hear truth. We want to be flattered. Help us, Lord, to wake up from these attractions that would lead to the destruction of our life and wake up to only be attracted to you. May the Holy Spirit expose in our life areas where we are deficient and send men and women who will come alongside of us to teach us truth so that our blind spots will no longer be unknown to us, but we will know it so that we can correct it to be more like you. We love you, Lord, and we desire to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.